1711, Alexander Pope anonymously published what would become a famous poem. How we know it was him when it was anonymous, I don't know. But the poem was called (laughs) An Essay on Criticism, and it contains this famous line that I know you all have heard. To err is human, to forgive, right. Well, if Pope knew what Isaiah knew, I believe he might have written to err is Ephraim, as you will see this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 28. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees. And as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, and a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line. A little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. So, the word of the Lord to them will be, order on order, order on order. Line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. That they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Lord Jesus, this word from Isaiah, though we realize it is to another people at another time, speaks very powerfully uh, to my heart. And I pray, Father, that there will be conviction in all of our hearts this morning as we study these words and think about what it was. Holy Spirit, You were speaking through the prophet. And I pray, Father, You will continue to grow and nurture and mature this fellowship to be the kind of people You've called us to be, the light in this world that You have called us to be. May we, Father, respond to You when convicted and just revel in You when we are compelled by Your love. And may we this morning sense more of Your goodness and Your grace and especially more of Jesus as we pray and study in Jesus' name. Amen. So three weeks ago today, in the afternoon, Cheryl and I stood on a parcel of land, and it was absolutely profound. Perhaps the most profound experience I've had to date in the land of Israel. We arrived a few days before the group to rest and reconnoiter. 
That's what I call it. We, we always like to go in and see if we can scout out possible future places for uh, future Israel tours, Lord willing. Unless he comes, then we'll have a tour with him. <clears throat> but our tour guide, Eitan, met us. And we drove out on into what is called the West Bank, into an area, and stepped out on this 12-acre level mound. It was amazing. It set midway between green valleys below and rocky, craggy peaks above us and all around. This level mound is known as ancient Shiloh. We stood at Shiloh. I'm probably going to say Shiloh. I might say Shiloh. It's Shiloh if you're speaking Hebrew, but I'm not Hebrew, so we'll just sit with Shiloh. When we stepped onto the mound, not before and not after, but when we stepped on the mound, the hair on the back of my neck stood straight up. I mean, it was, it was electrifying. I, I, I stood there thinking, you know, am I just excited to be in this ancient location? You know, am I just kind of drumming this up? The second I stepped off the mound, the feeling went away. I thought that was very interesting. That was just my experience. Of course, I found out later that Cheryl had the exact same experience. I asked her, what happened when you stepped on the mound? Did you notice anything? And she said, yeah, just everything started tingling. I went, wow. Why? What is the big deal with Shiloh? You Bible students know there on that mound, for over 150 years, the tabernacle sat. The tabernacle of Moses on, on that place, that level place. And we know, archaeologically, we know that is the place. It's one of those spots in Israel, and there are many of them, but there are a lot of places that you just don't know. Did this really happen here? Did it really happen there? But that level mound at Shiloh, that is 99% accurate. We're sure that's where the tabernacle stood. Joshua chapter 18, verse 1 tells us the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Now, listen, if you've never done a study on the tabernacle, you need to. And if you want a little help with that, go to Exodus 25 through 31, read and study it through on our website www.bridgechristianfellowship.org that teaching is there and we taught through and we talked about all the shadows and types of the tabernacle and it is a remarkable study God knew what he was doing God was talking about Jesus even back then and the tabernacle itself the courtyard the outer courtyard the holy place and the holy of holies it all speaks of Jesus in remarkable ways The outer courtyard was there, sat on that level mound. And in the outer courtyard, as you come in, you would see first the bronze altar where sacrifice happened. Huge, huge altar there. And between the bronze altar and the opening of the holy place was what they called a bronze laver, a huge bowl filled with water for washing, for the ceremonial washing of the priests. The holy place, we've talked about recently, it had the golden lampstand to the left as you come in. To the right, the golden table of showbread. And directly in front, that golden altar of incense where the priests offered incense daily and their prayers would go up before the Lord. And in the most holy place stood the Ark of the Covenant. That golden box. On top of it, the mercy seat. Inside of it, the Ten Commandments. The Hebrew writer adds that there was also a jar of manna and Aaron's rod that budded were also there in the box. We actually uh, got to see a representation of this. The remnant of our group that went on to Jordan 
Uh, as we headed down to the Negev in the south of Israel, we came to a place called Timnah. And down at Timnah, there is a full-size tabernacle that's been set up, a reproduction. And it was awesome to walk through that and to see it. We went all the we went into the most holy place. I didn't even wash. <laughs> and you know, it's funny. We were standing in there, and and we're looking at this you know, representation of the Ark of the Covenant and, and we're all kind of quiet. And then the tour guide, who was awesome, she moved back the lid and I just kind of took a step back. You know? <laughs> it's like going to be Beth Shemesh all over again. <laughs> Beth Shemesh, well, that's another story. <laughs> but we, we looked at this thing and for a century and a half, this tabernacle that bore the Shekinah, of God, the kind of presence, that divine presence of God. He said, I'll meet with you there in the tent of meeting, there above the mercy seat. And God allowed His divine presence. His presence would be seen by all of Israel. Because over the tabernacle, as they journeyed through the wilderness, there was that, there was that cloud by day, that fire by night, the, the Shekinah. And so it's not surprising, at least not to me, to step onto that mound where the very presence of God was there at planet Earth and to experience something absolutely profound. But here's the thing. The mountains surrounding Shiloh, if you were to stand right there, you would see all the way around. It it actually sits down. There, There are valleys below, so it's up above the valleys, but down below these mountains that encircle Shiloh. And the mountains are called the mountains of Ephraim. Still, still the mountains of Ephraim today. That's what the Jewish people refer to these mountains as. The tabernacle rested at Shiloh. Shiloh rested at the heart of Ephraim. What happened? We just read in Isaiah 28, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. What happened? The very Ark of the Covenant sat at Shiloh in the midst of Ephraim. And if you look on your Bible maps, and you might want to just do that, look to the back of your Bible and check out where Ephraim is on a Bible map, and you'll see Shiloh right there at the heart of the people of Ephraim. And yet we come to Isaiah 28, and we come to a woe. Why Ephraim? Why is this a woe to Ephraim? Let me remind you something that the people of or the people Isaiah refers to as Ephraim is all of northern Israel, not just the tribe. And from here on out, you're going to hear a lot about this. You'll hear northern Israel referred to as Ephraim. It's the entire northern kingdom when Ephraim is called out. Why is that? Because Ephraim was the seat of northern Israel's authority. The seat of the government there, the spiritual leadership of the northern kingdom of Israel was in Ephraim at Shiloh in the region of Samaria. A Samaria in the Hebrew scriptures was the seat of northern Israel's government. So this woe, as we begin Isaiah 28, this woe is to all of the northern kingdom of Israel, but at the heart of that northern kingdom sat Shiloh. And somehow, though the presence of God was so close, somehow the northern kingdom of Israel would end up so far away. Why does this type of thing happen? Now, you might note the first word of chapter 28. It's woe. We come to a new section now. In the prophet's scroll, the rabbis call it the book of woes. 
chapter 28 through 33. Six chapters, the book of woes. And there will be one woe after another. And if you recall, before some of us went to Israel, you might say, man, didn't we just leave the book of burdens? Now we get into the book of woes? In fact, I think at the last Wednesday night study, I said, and that concludes the book of burdens. We can move on right into the woes. Hang in there, woeful ones. Because with the exception of the book of Emmanuel, the first part of Isaiah is primarily judgments and warnings and woes to Israel and all the nations. But the second part of the book, which is, which is fast approaching, Isaiah 40 on, is not about woes or judgment. It is all about grace. Let me give you a sneak preview. Keep your finger in Isaiah 28. Go to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 1 reads, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for God. You know where that's coming from. You know, that's a prophecy of John the Baptist, right? And so right here, where judgment turns into consolation, where woes turn into grace, we have John the Baptist coming, hailing the coming of Jesus Christ. That's where grace comes from. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley, and then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So good news is on the way, but we got to stick with the woes first. Back in Isaiah 28, we need to stay in the place of the woe. Why? Well, because to err is human. And because we have this, this human tendency to, to need judgment... <laughs> We have this human tendency to need warnings. And so warnings and woes always precede comfort and consolation as we see here in the book of Isaiah. And so Isaiah is going to preach woes. And he begins with Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he says in verse 1, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Remember what the Hebrew word for woe is? Anyone? Oy. It is. Oy vey. That's where it comes from. The word woe is oy. But to hear it spoken in a Hebrew dialect, that word sounds more like a sigh. Oy. It's a sigh of sorrow. It's a gasp of grief. It's the sound we make every time we pull into gas stations these days. <laughs> or it's the sound I make when my wife announces we're about to start a fruit and veggie diet. You know? <laughs> In this case, it's much more serious, though. When the, it's almost as though, even though he writes it, you hear the Holy Spirit gasping. You hear the Spirit of God grieved as He says, Oi! And He reads, 
Behold, verse 2, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. Well, the mighty agent is Assyria. It's Assyria. What about this beautiful fertile valley? It's Samaria. And it really is a beautiful fertile area. As Cheryl and I stood there at Shiloh, looking all around us, the green hills, and they were very green. Spent a lot of rain in Israel this year, praise the Lord. They need it. The hills were green, and they were dotted with red and yellow, red poppies and yellow wildflowers, yellow daisies were just all over the place. What was interesting to me, and I have pictures of this, the mound at Shiloh, though there were kind of dots here and there of, of the red and flowers around, on the mound of Shiloh, it was just like solid red poppies. Is there something to that? Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) I just found that very interesting, as though, if nothing else, the land there, that 12-acre square land where the tabernacle sat, it's rich and fertile. But he talks about this fertile valley, the fading glory, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, and that's Samaria. And that's the capital of northern Israel. And and the Israelites would look to Samaria, not Jerusalem, where they should be looking, but to Samaria as their capital, as their great crown, as their beautiful flower. And as we sang earlier, how fast does the flower, flower fade? And at the head of this fertile valley, Isaiah denounces Ephraim as a bunch of drunken fools. Bunch of drunken fools. Look at verse 3. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden under foot. Hmm. It's an interesting phrase, trodden under foot. Maybe it brings to mind what Jesus said about Jerusalem. Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive in all, into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And by the way, Jerusalem continues to be trampled underfoot today. Don't have to read much of the news to see that. Did you hear while we were in Israel that the rockets started falling? Let me just tell you something. When that happens, and every time we've gone to Israel, something is heated up like that. While we were there. The very first time Cheryl and I went to Israel, there was a suicide bomb in Tel Aviv one day after we left Tel Aviv. And the whole fellowship was freaking out. And I wasn't. I didn't know it happened. That's typically what happens when you're touring in Israel is you really don't know. The only reason we knew bombs were falling or rockets were being fired out of Gaza was because our guide, Eitan, told us about it. And he kept, he'd drop the news on his iPhone and he would let us know every day how many rockets had been fired off. Now, understand if you live in Israel, especially southern Israel, rockets are falling every day. We don't hear about it on the news, but it's a consistent thing. It's just when it amps up. And overnight, one night while we were there, 85 rockets were fired out of Gaza. And that number continued over the next couple of days to over 200 rockets fired all at once at these southern towns of Israel, Esterot and Beersheba and Ashkelon and Ashdod. And of course, this past week, there was a ceasefire agreement, which I guess just means a few less rockets because only 150 rockets were fired after the ceasefire Maybe there's a language problem. <laughs> no, no, cease to stop, not to continue. And of course, Israel retaliated, and the consistently blind media blames Israel for the whole thing. You know what statistics you never hear? No one's pointing out that Esther wrote, which is right there near the border of Gaza, has endured daily rocket attacks for the past decade. Every day. 
There has not been a day for the past ten years that at least a rocket has fallen in or near Esterot. You don't hear about that in the news. You don't hear about the fact that 86% of 12 to 14 year olds who live in Esterot wet their beds. You don't know about the fact that 93% of 7 to 11 year olds in Esterot never play outside. Because that's reality. That's the life that they live. And while the world blames Israel, Israel is trodden underfoot. And we're still seeing it today during the times of the Gentiles. Well, my friends, the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And when that's over, the Lord will turn His wrath toward the Gentile world that has rejected His people Israel. That's another sermon for another time, but we could spend some time on that. I I guess we probably have. But no wonder this is a woe. Woe to the people of Israel. Ever since Isaiah spoke the words 2,700 years ago, the woe has continued for northern Israel. Immediately, the leadership of Ephraim, back then when Isaiah spoke these words, and it was just before 722, just prior to 722 B.C., Isaiah spoke the words in chapter 28. And they were fulfilled almost immediately. Ephraim lost that divine protection of God. It was lifted. They came under his severe judgment. And the Gentile regime of Assyria came flooding in and wiped out the northern kingdom and wiped out that glorious crown of beauty, Samaria. And the northern ten tribes were, as some think, lost. Not lost. God knows where his people are. Dispersed. Some fled down to Judah. Some ended up consumed by the nations. Note verse 4, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. That is so fascinating. Prophecy students, don't miss that. The first ripe fig. Whenever the Bible talks about fig trees, especially when the word like is used, like a fig tree, it's talking about Israel. And we see this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Israel is likened to a fig tree, which is why I'm convinced Jesus is talking about Israel when He says in Matthew 24:32, Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus is piggybacking off of Isaiah's words when Isaiah says it will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer. Jesus says when you see this, This tree beginning to bud. You know summer's almost here. And Isaiah was saying the same thing. Israel, you're like the first ripe fig right before summer, but guess what happens? Here comes Assyria, and they rip the fig off the tree, and you get swallowed, swallowed up by the nations. It's going to happen again. Jesus said, you too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near right at the door. When the fig tree begins to ripen. And right now we see Israel, that fig tree, and it is ripening. And once again, it's going to be swallowed by the nations for three and a half years. During which time a remnant of believers in Israel, they're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to see who Messiah is. They're going to realize who He is. Come to faith in Him. And then they're going to flee and be protected in a place in the wilderness. We talked about several weeks ago. Some of us stood at that place about a week ago, Petra, if that is in fact the place in the wilderness that they hide. Today, this budding 
fig tree of Israel is the sign of Jesus soon appearing. In Isaiah's day, it was a sign that they would soon be swallowed up. Why did God allow this? Why did God allow His people Israel to be swallowed up in such a way? Well, there are a lot of reasons given in Scripture. Idolatry is probably at the very top of the list. But sticking only to the passage before us, there are three things I want you to note about Ephraim, about northern Israel. Three issues, three problems that cause them to be swallowed up by the world. And I believe we can make application to our own lives as we look at these things. Verse 7. Skip down to verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. Is real. <laughs> they reel from having visions. They totter when rendering judgment for the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Why? Because they're puking up after all the wine they've been drunk. They're sick by the drink that they're taking in. And what we see in Ephraim, error number one, is drunken confusion. Drunken confusion going on in northern Israel, in Ephraim. The leadership, the priests, the prophets of Israel, they're of Ephraim, the false prophets. These guys are all three sheets to the wind. They're drunk and they're continuing to drink. And this has become the daily attitude of the people. Drunken confusion. Listen again to what King Lemuel's mother said in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 31, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing. And wine to him whose life is bitter. I asked the question when we studied Proverbs, are you perishing? If you're perishing, go ahead, drink up. It's the best you got. You know, unless you'd like to come to Jesus, and he's better. Give wine to him whose life is bitter. Is your life bitter? Well, you got two options. You can go drink or, or you can come to Jesus and find what Glenn talked about this morning reconciliation, which takes away bitterness. It is not for kings to get drunk. You know, I I thought about kind of skipping over this one because I hammered it pretty heavily last year. We talked about drinking. We talked about alcohol. We talked about Christians and our attitudes toward toward drinking. And and I looked at this and I thought, well, should I talk about this? I thought, well, no, I can because I'm not really the one bringing it up again. God is. (laughs) So let's just face it. Brothers and sisters, and I am talking to Christians right now, you have a choice. You can choose the confusion of Ephraim, or you can choose the comfort of the Spirit. Tragically, in the church, we want to take it both ways. We want to be just a little confused, and still have the comfort of the Spirit. You know, We take our freedom in Christ, which truly we have. We are free in Christ. We are saved by grace. It is not our works that saves us. But we want to take that and use it as a tool for trampling grace. And we don't realize the impact we're having on ourselves, and that is the confusion that comes out of drinking itself. Paul said it very clearly. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, he gives a clear choice. There's drinking and there's filling. 
You can fill up with wine and get drunk, or you can fill up with the Spirit and get a clear head. And that's the difference. The more wine you drink, the more drunk and confused you get. The more of the Spirit you have in your life, the more clear everything becomes. The sharper your soul, the more graceful your spirit. And yet we as Christians still go, yeah, but I still want to have my my wine. I still want to have my beer. I still want to have my drink. Gang, this passage in Isaiah is a woe. It is a declaration of grief. And it makes me think that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And if you want to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit, don't be a drunken fool. The Christian drinks on a Friday night, gets drunk, wakes up Saturday morning and goes, Oh, I feel terrible. How do you think the Holy Spirit feels? Grieved. When we went through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, I, I was convicted. I didn't say so, I don't think, at the time. But um, my attitude toward drinking was moderation before. It was. And I, I'd drink wine. We would go out to a nice dinner and I'd have a glass of wine. And I always limited myself. I said, Lord, I'm just going to... One glass, that will always be my limit. And I never went over that. Just have a glass of wine and that'd be cool. And then we started studying this stuff. <laughs> started looking at it. And the Lord said, Rick... Are you going to preach this? Or are you going to live this? Oh, Jesus, why? (laughs) And so I made a personal decision when we were studying at that time not to drink. And I I haven't since and I won't again. I I like Jesus' attitude. I'm not going to drink wine anymore until the day I come in my Father's kingdom. That day, I'm going to party up with Jesus. (laughs) It's going to be great. But I want you to understand something here. I made a personal decision not to drink, and it's not about church, and it's not about friends, and it's not about family, and it's not uh, about judging those who who choose a a more moderate approach rather than a strict uh, no-drinking policy. But gang, it's about remaining clear-minded. And it's about me desiring, and this is Rick, just me personally desiring for more room for the Holy Spirit to be at work in my life and not, not to be pushed out by anything that I do. I need room for more clarity of His Spirit. I desperately need more of His Spirit on a daily basis. And I can tell you, my family can tell you. I need the Spirit of God at work in me. I don't judge anyone for choosing moderation. But to avoid the conversation is to ignore the the elephant in the church foyer. And it's just a reality. There is way too much drinking and there is way too much drinking to drunkenness in the church. And we laugh it off as, oh, well, I'm forgiven. Yeah, you are forgiven. You're also stupid. <laughs> well, let's move on. Note, <laughs> Note what the drunken confusion of Ephraim leads to. See, here's part of the problem. It's not just drunkenness that's the issue. It's what comes next. Look at verse 9. Now, understand verses 9 and 10. This is Isaiah quoting the people of Ephraim. The people of northern Israel. He's quoting them. This is what they say to Isaiah. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? Error number two. Their drunken confusion turns into disdainful condescension. They are responding to the prophet of God with disdain. They're laughing at him. 
they actually had begun mocking the prophecy of Isaiah. This remarkable scroll, think about it, we've been studying this over the last several weeks, and we open up Isaiah and we just go, wow, this is amazing, this is incredible, the words of God, Emmanuel, teachings about Mashiach, Messiah, and and we're blown away by the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of the book of Isaiah. They were mocking it. They were laughing at him. They were disdaining the words coming out of Isaiah's mouth, which were directly from the Holy Spirit of the living God. And so they make this comment, to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? They're saying, who do you think we are? Little babies? (laughs) Think we're ignorant, Isaiah? It's curious to me that the natural man tends to find spiritual things childish, or foolish, or even offensive. And the more I'm in my carnal self, the more disdain I would tend to show for the Word of God. The more I focus on natural things. I think Mike Hoffman was telling me, he had a tour guide one of the first times he went to Israel. This was uh, years and years ago. And his tour guide was very sharp. Uh, A Jewish tour guide, archaeologist, knew the land very well. But he said this to Mike, he said, prophecy is for fools and children. I told our group while we were there this last week, hey, (laughs) then I'm a fool and a child. Prophecy is a stuff of fools and children. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake. Jesus said in Mark 10.15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Fools and children, gang, have no problem accepting the truth. It's easy. It's only as we grow older and more mature and more wise that we have trouble accepting God's Word. And I watched it, you know, doing youth ministry, I watched it with teenagers. How they started to think more and more for themselves and and to individuate more and more from their parents. Now, as they begin thinking, the question's coming out and, and, oh, look how smart and wise we are. And I'm like, they're just a bunch of idiots, you know. And I realized, the older I got, the more foolish I really was in trusting my own ways. Fools and children are not gummed up by the proud human intellect. A lot of Israeli tour guides are into the proofs of archaeology. They're big on that. That's great. And I want our groups to see that and understand how archaeology comes along and truly does support Scripture, which is the very thing you know archaeology keeps supporting, but they disdain Bible prophecy. And I've watched it happen time and time again. When I started teaching prophecy in Israel, the tour guide wanders off. Now, not this time. Eitan stuck around. He was listening. And I pray that this stuff was getting in. But we have seen far too many of these guys who prefer the dirt of the earth to the Word of God. Now granted, Psalm 85.11, truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. And God has provided us archaeological proof to support Scripture over time. And something Eitan did on this last tour that was great is he kept challenging and pushing and encouraging our group to be more grounded in our defense of the Word of God. We had a couple altercations there in the bus. It was marvelous. <laughs> I just, you know, Aton would, would kind of ask a, a, a pushing question, and I just sat back and listened to the group respond. 
And he kept saying, you need to know the stuff because there are people who are not going to believe that the Bible is true. And you can't use the Bible as your basis because there are people who aren't going to... And he's right, there are people who are not going to start with believing the truth of the Word of God. So you need to take a step back and say, okay, let me tell you why I believe that the Bible is God's Word. And there's merit to history and geography and archaeology and us having learning that supports why we believe what we believe. But I'll tell you this, gang, I would rather start with the Word of God and then see what the dirt has to say. (laughs) This is my assumption of truth right here. I believe that this is true. And then I look and see what does archaeology have to say about it. Now, if archaeology disagrees, I have another assumption that immediately follows. Archaeology is wrong, and we'll figure that out. (laughs) Well, that's a little stupid. No, actually, that's uh, 4,000 years of proof that every time the archaeologist says this is not true, it turns around that actually it truly is. So, start with God's Word. Why? Because we don't worship stones and bones. We worship a living God. Jesus said to the Sadducees, you do not understand the Scriptures of the power of God. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The Hebrew writer tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Not only do we have a living God, but we have a living word. This is not a dead book. It is living and active, and God is capable by the power of His Spirit and His own word written down to change a heart in a way that no archaeology can do it. I'll tell you something about my friend Aton. He has a lot of knowledge. In fact, of all the tour guides I've had in Israel, he has the most. He was the most proficient in knowing the land. And wow, does he understand the land. He also understands the church because he was raised going to church in Florida before moving to Israel, marrying his Moroccan wife and raising his children Jewish over there. Interesting guy. He's got all the head knowledge you need. It's the word that gets in. And it's the word that pierces through sometimes all of the prideful, disdainful condescension of the word of God. This was Ephraim's error. They condescended the very prophecies of Isaiah. And that was right on the heels of their drunken confusion. See, the drunken confusion gang is not just about drinking. It's about doing what I want to do. It's about choosing a carnal life and doing things my way. And the more I live that way, the more disdain I will have for God's Word. Why? Because God's Word convicts that lifestyle. And so if I'm living this lifestyle, I'm going to want less and less. And I've told you this. I see this happen. I see people pulling back from being involved at church. And invariably, invariably it's because their lifestyle doesn't allow them to be here. And if you find yourself pulling back, you might want to just do a little lifestyle check. What are you watching? What are you doing? What are you taking in that that makes church the place you really really don't want to be? So, the people of Ephraim, they say in verse 10, and it's interesting, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. You need to hear it the way it's spoken in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, they say, 
Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. <laughs> Sounds a little different, doesn't it? It's like children sticking out their tongue going, na, 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 na. And this is what the people are doing. They are scorning the words of Isaiah. And Isaiah writes it right back to them. You know, <laughs> there are times I've, I've told my kids when they're whining. This is not Hannah because she stopped like a week ago, but the younger ones. <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I wish I had a tape recorder just right when you're wanting to click record and let you hear what it sounds like. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. I'm going to record this and play it back for you. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav, na na na. Isaiah, your words are babbling nonsense to us. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Exactly. <laughs> well spoken, Jason. In the words of uh, Nadge. That's right. <laughs> He'll tell you about that later. Verse 11. So Isaiah says, Indeed. Indeed. He will speak to this people through stammering lips. And a foreign tongue. He's talking about Assyria here. He who said to them, Here's rest, give rest to the weary. Here's repose. But they would not listen. So the word of the Lord will be to them. Sav lat sav, sav lat sav. Kav la kav, kav. You're making fun of the Word of God with these babbling words. Guess what? He's going to teach you through a different language. You got the language of, of the Word and you rejected it. So guess what? Ephraim's error, third error, third and final error, the dialect of corruption. I'm going to give you a different dialect to learn from. You want to play the fool? I will speak to you through the babbling tongue of the Assyrians. You want to play the child? Great. I will use the language of captivity. And judgment fell heavily on northern Israel. Their babbling, brutish language. Northern Israel would hear it in Assyria. Southern Judah would later hear it in Babylon. And Moses warned all the people this is exactly what would happen before they ever entered the land. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. And it happened. The bottom line is, if you don't hear the righteous language of God's Word, you're going to listen to the dialect of corruption. By the way, turn over to 1 Corinthians 14 for a moment. Because Paul comes along, and I told you I'd try and point this out whenever we see this happening. Paul quotes directly from Isaiah. He's correcting the church at Corinth for their misunderstanding and misuse of tongues. A spiritual gift given by the Spirit, speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues, and they were vastly misusing it at Corinth. Corinth was off the chart. Corinth was charismaniacs, let's put it that way. They were out of control. Listen to what Paul says here. And I never understood the context of this before. You need to get this. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants. That is, be you know, innocent. But in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's Isaiah 28.11 that he's quoting from. 
And then he goes on and he says, So then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now understand this. The context. Context is everything in understanding God's Word. The context of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14 is Isaiah 28.11. So when we understand what's happening in Isaiah 28.11, we can understand the inference that Paul is making, what he's trying to say here. He's correcting the Corinthians. So what's he saying? He's saying any dialect gang, be it a foreign language or a language speaking in tongues, any dialect that becomes more important to us than God's Word is corrupt. And that is a sharp word to some in our culture, in our church culture, who would say things like, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not really a Christian. The Bible never says that. Show me where. It is elevating one spiritual gift above the Word of God. And that was the problem going on in Isaiah 28. And that's the problem going on at Corinth. And that's what Paul is dealing with. In contrasting tongues and prophecy, Paul says the words of God's mouth are far more important and far outweigh any words that come out of my mouth. Anything that I speak. And by the way, when you're listening to the preaching of Pastor Rick, you better apply that same principle. The words of God are far more important than anything I say. Peter said, and I I preach this verse all the time, we have the prophetic word more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. We need His word, not our words. And His word is what helps us rightly navigate the course of this life. His word. Which is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 8.20, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. Any word that is not aligned with the word of God is because a person is coming from a place of darkness. Ephraim suffered from drunken confusion, disdainful condescension, and a dialect of corruption. And when we look at those three things, you can go back to Ephesians or Isaiah 28. When we consider these things, there's a pattern here that plays out that, that Isaiah is talking about. This pattern that begins with this worldly drunken confusion and leads into you know, the condescension of the Word of God and then breeds a dialect of corruption. See how one flows into the next? And all of this reveals a denial of God's Word. But look back. Because right in the middle of this woe, for those who would hear the clear Word of the Lord, there is a wonderful prophetic promise here, back in verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of His people. Back up. Back up. Second half of verse 4. I'll do all of verse 4. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees. And as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, 
The Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown, a glorious diadem to the remnant of His people, a spirit of justice for Him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. Now there's something historical here. Because when when Assyria came and attacked northern Israel at Samaria, what we often don't talk about is the fact that though that captivity took place in 722, you realize for three years prior to that, the soldiers of Israel were holding off Samaria. God empowered, strengthened, gave the ability to the Israeli defense forces of that day, the ability to hold off the soldiers at the gate, held off the Assyrians for three, three full years, which I would call three more years of grace, holding back this dialect of corruption, holding back this enemy that's coming in to destroy He gave the soldiers of Israel strength. He always does, by the way. If you read the history of the warfare of Israel, both biblical history, if you look at modern history, He has given His soldiers amazing strength. The things that that these people pull off are astounding. Read the Six-Day War. You know, Read the Yom Kippur War. Look at these books. Oh, Jerusalem. It's incredible what happens. And how God continues to give strength to this people, though denying Him to strengthen this people, to give them more time, opportunity for grace to come. But Bible students, I'm sure you caught it, Isaiah uses that phrase, in that day. And for Isaiah, this phrase is not an historical phrase. This phrase is the language of the end of days. And here in the middle of this woeful judgment, the Lord promises a better day. A better day is coming. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown to a glorious and a glorious diadem to the remnant of His people. In what day? The day when the fig tree ripens and it's plucked from the branch and the nations try to swallow it. In that day, He's going to become glorious for His people. You know what He's talking about. The coming kingdom. The glorious kingdom that He has promised to Israel. Isaiah gives this Bright glimpse, right in the middle of the woe. This glimpse of future fulfillment. And at the same time, saying to the people of Israel, don't look to the glory of Samaria. Don't look to the glory of your capital city, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Look to the glory of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabah. Look to His glory. And the remnant of His people will look to Him and they will be saved in that day. Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, In that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and His resting place will be glorious. And then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. How will God accomplish all this? Now think about this. We're almost done. Israel's rest... Israel's repose, as we read down in verse 12, it was first offered at a place called Shiloh. This will be your place of rest. This will be the place where my presence will dwell among you. This will be the place that I meet with you, the Lord says to Israel. Shiloh means place of rest. It's the same root, by the way, as Shalom, which we talked about a few weeks back. Peace. The place of rest. Israel past and present will only find rest there. At Shiloh. Verse 12 says, He who said to them, Here is rest. Give rest to the weary. And here is repose. Where? Shiloh. 
Right here. It's a place of rest. But they would not listen. And that's always the problem. Isn't it? Israel's problem? It's your problem. It's my problem. When do we not know rest? When we do not listen. Shiloh sat at the center of the mountains of Ephraim all around. But God removed His presence from there and they would not know rest. Why? Their father Jacob knew. Jacob, centuries before, on his deathbed as he's blessing his sons, old Jacob prophesied these words, Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49 verse 10 is the only place in all the Hebrew scriptures that Shiloh is spoken of as a person rather than a place. Everywhere else, Shiloh is the place, the location in the mountains of Ephraim. But here for Jacob, Shiloh is Messiah. Shiloh is Jesus. And to him, listen, Jacob said, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now let me ask, brothers and sisters in Christ, is it possible to claim Christ and yet to err like Ephraim? Yes. We do it all the time. All we have to do to err like Ephraim is though we've claimed Christ, though we are the people belonging to Jesus, just to stop listening to Him. Just to stop obeying Him. Are we listening? Are we obeying Jesus? Not the babbling language of this world, which by the way is getting louder. I was sitting there, we went and saw the Hunger Games the other night. And I'm sitting there during the previews of the movie. And, it, you know, just the previews themselves and, and the interaction and all the commercials and everything. And I'm just going, oh, you know, I need, a, I need an aspirin here. And this one preview came up and I forget, I think, I don't even remember what it was for, but it was for an upcoming movie. And down in the corner it says, if you have Shazam, press now. I'm like, oh, I have my iPhone and I have Shazam on my iPhone. You know what Shazam is? It's a little app and you press it and if some music's playing somewhere, you press that app and you hold it up and it hears the music and it tells you who the artist is, what the music is, and what album it's on. It just immediately tells you. It's pretty cool. So I'm always around going, oh, I like that tune. Beep. <laughs> okay. And then right there, you can go right to iTunes, buy it, put it on your phone. You don't even, I mean, it's just incredible. So I'm sitting there and it says Shazam and I'm like, oh, I have that. And I flip over and I go, Shazam. And it gives me all this content of this upcoming movie. And it gives me another trailer I can watch and more information about it. And I'm just like, information overload! It's too much! This is constant babbling in the world. And it's just, it's a cacophony. Isn't it horrible? It's so loud. Are we, brothers and sisters in Christ, are we listening to that language more than we're listening to the Word of God? Contrast it to what we do on Sundays. I mean, really. What we're doing right now is pretty ridiculous in this day and age. You guys are sitting in a barn listening to a guy talk out of a book. <laughs> and, and, and to the unbelieving world, you'd have to ask the question, why do people keep showing up? Now, I know there are churches where the pastor probably says, hey, punch the Zam right now and you can check out what I'm talking about. You know, And there are guys doing their, all their tech stuff and the smoke and mirrors and everything. 
We're just in the Word of God. It's where we need to be. In these days, in this, these last days especially, Ephraim, gang, they had Shiloh in the heart of the place, but Shiloh was not in the heart of the people. And that's what was missing. When Shiloh is in a person's heart, and I'm talking about Jesus, when Jesus is truly in your heart, obedience flows naturally. Or should I say obedience flows supernaturally? <laughs> when you got Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Don't miss that. You confess with your mouth and you are saved. You have salvation. God's grace has you covered. But also if you believe in your heart, the result is righteousness. A changed life. A life that stays with Shiloh, not the place but the person. Alexander Pope was right. To err is human. And to forgive is divine. But I would add one thing to that. I would say to know forgiveness is rest and repose. Amen? Amen. Lord, we need the resting place of Jesus. To reside there and to dwell there and to be at peace there. Though the mountains of the world be large round about and the language of the world be noisy and clamoring, trying to get our attention, trying to draw us away, we just need to be in this place of rest. And it only only comes as we walk with Jesus. Lord, I, I thank You for the opportunity to walk in the land the last couple of weeks. But I'm reminded again upon returning home that my rest is not there. It's not even here as a location. It is simply wherever you are. It's being in your presence. Jesus, you said you would come and you would make your abode in my heart. And with you here, my Shiloh, my Savior, my Messiah, I find rest. And I pray this for our fellowship. I pray this for anyone who would walk in the doors of this barn. That they might find rest in Jesus Christ. That we will proclaim and declare Jesus as peace and as rest in a clamoring world. And I ask you, Father, this morning, to bend people's hearts toward that place of rest. To call us back to you through Jesus Christ. And if there is anyone here, Lord, who has never given their life to following after Jesus, may they do it today. In Jesus' name, Amen.